0: What is it in your life that bothers you the most? (laughs) And then, as you think about this question, that question, think about this. What would your life look like if that went away? In fact, what would your life look like if all of your problems vanished? Let the gravity of that sink in for just a minute. If there were no frustration in your workplace, if there were no relational friction in all of your households, if there were no sort of lasting guilt or shame in your hearts, what would that be like? And what would it be like if not just your life, but the life of this world were rid of all of its problems? What if poverty really was abolished? Children's Hunger Fund would be out of a job. What if, um, what if wars ended? What if uh, the tyranny of the powerful were done away with? What if all of the natural disasters that seem to randomly overtake some people from time to time were just gone? What if, this world, what if this world was perfect? What if your life was perfect? Can you imagine that? The story of God which we started last week, presents for us, at the very beginning of the Christian scriptures, a perfect world. Last week we saw that God, who pre-existed this universe, made everything that is not God. And everything that he made, he called good. He created man in his image and placed man on this world to have dominion, to rule it under his greater authority. And the world that God made was perfect. It was beautiful. It was amazing. It was literally a paradise. Now, our world is no longer like that. If you're here and you're not a Christian or if you're skeptical of Christianity, don't think that becoming a Christian is going to make your life perfect. It won't. In fact, it might make your life more difficult. But Christianity does promise that the world that once was, that we just read about in Genesis chapter 2, will one day come back when Jesus comes back. That's a part of the story. But where we are tonight is thinking about this world that God has made. And in particular, as we're starting this series, The Story of God, we're trying to get a hold on the way Christians answer some of life's biggest questions, questions like, Why is something here rather than nothing? Why do I exist? What is the point of all of this seemingly random and downright wicked life? Christianity, along with other world religions, provides answers to those questions. And this, this series is designed in large part to help you understand what Christianity's answers are. And the way the answers come to us is in the form of this story, this narrative that we find in the Bible. If you're not a Christian, then I want you for just a moment tonight to suspend disbelief, so to speak, and at least listen to the story so that you will understand it on its own terms. If you've been a Christian for most of your life, um, then I would ask that as we continue in this series, you would be willing to look at the Bible in a new way and to look at how your life interacts with God's life in new ways. And so tonight, as we continue the story, we're going to be thinking about um, man's role Last week we saw that God is the main player in the drama of the universe. God pre-existed the world, God created the world and God is the main character in the story of the world, but we have a role to play as well. We are characters in the great drama of life. Last week in Genesis 1 we saw sort of the the macroscopic view. And tonight we're going to hone in and look at the microscopic view of what's going on in the world that God made. And in particular, what is the role that God intended initially for you and for me? And so as we examine, just for a couple of minutes tonight, this part of God's Word, Genesis chapter 2, and think about the, particularly the questions of what are we doing here after all? Why do I exist? Why am I alive? There's three things Well, there's more, but we're just going to look at three things tonight that this particular passage, this particular part of the very early story of God shows us. Three things about our particular role in the great story of this world. First, man is to tend. Second, man is to obey. And third, man is to multiply. Okay, so there's your outline. Man is to tend, to obey, and to multiply. That's where we're headed. So let's jump in and take a couple of minutes and look together at this really profound and for sure fascinating story, whether we're coming from a place of accepting it as truth or not. So first, man is to tend. We read in verse 7 that God creates man and forms him from the dust of the ground, and he breathes life into him so that he became a living creature. And then he puts man in this garden, in this place that is named Eden. Eden literally means luxury or delight. And if you read through the text, you see that it was undoubtedly a beautiful and a luxurious and a delightful place. The narrator of the story, Moses, spends a number of verses telling us about Eden. He says that every tree there was pleasant. It all tasted good. A river flowed out of the Eden, and there it divided into four rivers. There's gold there. There's onyx stone there. In other words, Eden, the place where man originally dwelled, according to the Bible, Is both beautiful and sustaining. And God, we read there in verse 15, places Adam, the man, and puts him in the middle of this garden, this Edenic paradise, to do two things to work it and to keep it. In other words, man's first role, according to the story of the Bible, is to tend, it's to take care of the garden. Think about it this way, Eden was a a small part of the initial world that God made, and man's job given to him by God, so to speak, is to extend and expand the paradise that Eden was across the entire globe. Man is to literally be a gardener. He is to tend to the soil. He's to take care of the lush, fertile life of that place. That's a part of his role. That's part of the reason God made him was to work. Now think about that for just a second. This might strike you. Work is not a result of sin. (laughs) Work doesn't exist just because of the fall, even though given what some of your jobs are like a lot of the times, you might think that it does. Work is something that God created us to do initially, before there was any ruin that was a part of God's creation. God called us to work. He called Adam to, to be a gardener. To tend, to keep, to guard this place and to expand and to extend it. I think that's important for you. It's important because the story of God, the Christian message tells you, among other things, that your work is valuable, your work is meaningful. It doesn't matter if you fly airplanes or if you lead a nonprofit or if you're a student or a musician, or if you serve drinks or if you big build fences or if you dig ditches or if you oversee computer mainframes, no matter what work you do, that work is valuable. And when you are working, when you are being productive, when you are creating things and making this life better and serving other people, you are, you are doing in a large part what God made you to do. You are tending and keeping this creation. But there's more going on here than just the idea that God created man to work or to tend the garden. You see those two words there, again in verse 15, the two verbs, work and keep, Those two words are only found together a handful of other times in the Old Testament. And one of the important ways we learn to read the Bible is when we see these two, two words together like this, and then we see those same two words in other places, there's something significant there about our interpretation of the text we're looking at. And every other time these two words, work and keep, are found together in the Old Testament, every time they refer to the work of the priests of Old Testament Israel particularly their role in taking care of the temple or the tabernacle of God. Now, that's strange. I want you to hold that thought for a second and also consider the idea that Eden, listen, Eden is not just a really nice garden. Eden is, it's the place where God himself lives, we see in the next chapter that God came and walked with man in the cool of the day in the garden. And the in, the implicit assumption there is that God regularly did this. You see Eden is not just a garden. Eden is it's a sanctuary. It's a temple. It's God's dwelling place. And so when God tells man to guard or to keep and tend this place, he's telling him, yes, you are to turn over the literal soil of the garden, but moreover, you are to live and move and act as a worshiper of God in this garden sanctuary. You know, that can be confirmed later on in the Old Testament, if you're interested, when the temple is built, And if you read that story, think about all the ways in which the temple in the Old Testament is decorated. It's decorated with the images and the carvings of fertility, of a garden, of something that is blooming. There's flowers, there's onyx stone that the priests are wearing. And what that's intended to communicate is that what's happening in the temple in the Old Testament is in many ways a a reduplication of what was intended in Eden. And so when when God puts man in the garden to work and to keep, he's saying, yeah, I want you to extend the garden and take care of these trees, but primarily I want you to serve me as a priest. I want you to worship me. I want you to live a life of holiness before me because I am holy. I want you to to have communion with me and to, to know me. And as you extend and expand this garden, you extend and expand the worship of a holy creator God. Think about it. If we learn anything from this part of the story, we learn at least that man, as he was created, is wired for worship. Every single one of you here tonight is is in a very real way hardwired to praise something. The question is not if you are worshiping or not. Humans, by necessity, worship worship. That's the way God made us. The question is, what or who are you worshiping? Initially, God put us in the garden to worship him and him alone, but because of sin, we'll get to this next week, we worship anything and everything but... So God places man at the beginning of this story in the Garden of Eden. And part of the role he gives man in this outworking of the drama is that man is to take care of the place, both as a literal gardener who works hard getting his hands dirty, but also as, as a priest in this holy temple where God himself dwells. Isn't that amazing? I think it's interesting. Secondly, though, God doesn't just call and create us to tend, to work, to worship, but he also calls us to obey. Look in verse 16. The Lord God, after he places Adam in the garden to work it and to keep it or guard it, he commands the man, one thing, you may, and notice what he says first, you can eat of any of these wonderful, lovely trees. They're all organic. You know, they don't have these things injected in them that make them evil and terrible. So all you organic people, you hippies, you would have loved it there. Um, they're all organic and lovely, I'm sure. They would have been healthy. You can eat of all these trees, but, verse 17, there's one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, and literally it means on that day, you will die. That is physically and spiritually die. So God, secondly, along with calling man to take care of this garden, is calling man, his initial role in the story is to obey. And there's one commandment you'll see there again that that God gives him, don't eat of this tree. Now, what's going on here is something that I think you'll understand more if you get the culture that the Bible, when it was, this part of the Bible was written in. You know, this is written thousands of years ago. And in in the day that Moses wrote this book, there's all these little city states that were vying for supremacy in the ancient Near Eastern world. And if one king would come and wipe out another king's town and ride in victoriously, he would say to the people of that town, Listen, I'm in charge now, I'm the boss, and here's how it's going to go. In fact, we're going to write this down, we're going to make a treaty. You're going to give me, say, 10% of all of your produce, of all of your goods. And if you do that, I, in return, pledge to build a wall around your town so that you don't get wiped out by the next invader to come along. We're going to make a covenant together. And this covenant has stipulations. If you, if you are nice, good, dutiful subjects and just give me 10% or whatever the taxation rate was in those days, then I'll take good care of you and I'm not going to let you get wiped out by another guy. And you can practice your religion freely. You can raise your little kids freely and have a pretty good life. But... If you try to stab me in the back, or if you try to rebel through force of arms, I am going to stamp you into the dirt." If you obey and do what I'm telling you to do, it's going to go well. But if you disobey, the covenant is broken, this treaty is going to be vanquished, and I'm coming and I'm taking you down, right? That's the way it worked. People in that day would have understood this sort of language. And that's exactly what's going on here. God is making, he's instituting what we call in biblical studies a covenant, an agreement, an arrangement with man, He's saying, if you obey me and love me, and trust me, it's not a bad life here. You're in a great garden. Work is perfect. You have no issues. There's no jacked-up issues inside of your heart. Everything's going great. Your wife's beautiful. You don't have any marriage problems. It should be pretty easy to just not eat of this one tree. Don't eat of it, and I will grant to you life forever. But if you eat of it, what's the stipulation? You die. It's a covenant And the covenant is based on whether or not Adam is going to obey. And so traditionally in theology, we call this covenant the covenant of works, okay? That's very important. You might not be interested in it. So let me ask this question. Why in the world would God do that? (laughs) Have you ever thought of that? I mean, why would God call them to obey? They don't have any sin. Allegedly, if the Bible's true at this point, there's no sin. There's no sort of reason, so to speak, for them to disobey. So why sort of seem heavy-handed here and drop this axe on them? You better not eat of that one tree. Well, here's why. God is instituting this sort of relationship with man because he wants man to learn what it means to live in a world where he is not ultimate. He wants man to understand what it's like to be under authority. Man has to learn to obey. And furthermore, listen, God wants man to know that when they obey and submit to his great and good kingship, they will then be free. You see, he wants them to see that living under allegiance to God, the Creator King, in this beautiful, perfect place is the best possible option for them. It is where all true freedom lies. And so, so to speak, God gives them this test, this command, this prohibition to teach them that they are derivative and dependent and he is original and ultimate that's why god gave the command it's not cuz he's being mean it's not cuz he's heavy-handed it's because he wants man over time to learn that living under god's rule is the best possible life and it's not like this tree by the way was like poisonous or didn't produce organic fruit and the hippies can't eat it and you can't find it in whole foods it's not that it's not really the tree itself that has any significance at all the tree is almost it's almost arbitrary in fact the tree is merely symbolic You could say that it's sacramental. It's called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because if man were to eat of that tree, he is showing that he wants to be original and ultimate. In other words, he wants to be the one who calls the shots. He wants to know everything. He wants to be the one that determines what is good and what is evil. We'll talk more about that next week, but for now, I want you to get that God calls man to obey him. And he sets up this arrangement with these very particular terms. He says, if you obey me, you will live. If you disobey me by breaking this one little rule, there's a billion trees in Eden. Just don't eat this one. If you can do that, life will go well for you. You will flourish. But if you don't, you will die. Man must learn that he is created, not creator. And so God calls him to obey. He calls him to tend, he calls him to obey, last he calls him to multiply. Beginning in verse 18, we see this very famous story of God creating woman from a rib taken out of Adam when he was sleeping. And uh, there's a ton that you could say there, of course, about marriage, etc., but the point I want to make for our purposes tonight is simply this. Part of man's initial role was to, was to procreate, it was to have little babies, It was to extend and expand their impact in the world. That's part of the purpose of marriage. The main purpose of marriage here is for companionship. It's so that man wouldn't be alone. But another purpose is so that they could do what God calls them to do in chapter 1, right? He says, have dominion. You know, this whole world is yours, go be fruitful and multiply. And the way that you multiply is by procreating with this beautiful woman and having lots of babies and loving life and continuing to teach your children to work and to worship and to obey. Man is called to tend as a priest and as a worker. He's called to obey God's one stipulation, and he's called to multiply. He's called to extend and expand his family, an important thing there for you to get about your role in this universe. And there's so much that could be said here, but for now, let me, let me just say this, especially for you moms, you know, you moms that are at home with your kids, cleaning up poop and doing dishes and not ever getting thanked and being ignored and putting that toy back in the toy bin for the 94th time today. That work, listen, that work is inherently valuable. That work of being a mom is literally culture extending. You know, most of the time today, our culture demeans that kind of, quote, menial work. It's true with dads as well, though. The Bible affirms your work as a dad. Love your kids. Have fun. Teach them what it means to obey. Teach them what it means to be gentle and kind with women. All of that work is meaningful, important work. It's what you were initially created to do. God created you in your family life to love and worship him by being a family, It's very important. As you raise kids and multiply, you are very really doing what God placed you on this earth to do. So don't ever think that your work is invaluable or unimportant. It is noted by God at every moment. God calls us at the beginning of the story, right, to tend the garden, to to obey his law, and to extend our families through multiplying and loving our children but we know that now that world does not exist you know I I open by saying what would it be like if your problems just vanished and that is just a pipe dream because your problems aren't going anywhere anytime soon when you wake up tomorrow they're still going to be there We no longer live in a world that can even begin to resemble the world that Genesis chapter 2 represents. And that's because of what happens in Genesis chapter 3, which we're going to talk about next week. But what happens very quickly is that we rebel, we sin, we don't obey. And because of that, our lives in many ways are rent and torn apart. They're ruined so that we no longer work well and love it, We no longer worship God and God alone as priests together. We no longer obey his commandments, but rather we look for new ways to disobey him, frankly. And even in our family lives, in the work of multiplication, there's all sorts of issues that come up. There's relational breakdown. There's children that go this way and go that way. There's all sorts of issues that make us think, how could this world have ever been and how could it ever be again? Well, listen, it's not ever going to be again because you were able to put it back together. And that's where I think the story of God is the most important and the most amazing. You see, what... What God is really teaching us here in Genesis chapter 2 is not just what we were originally intended to do in a perfect world. No, listen, God is teaching us that we were originally in a good creation intended to do these things, but we failed to do them and brought misery upon ourselves and upon this planet. And God doesn't just end the story there. No, God enters the story himself and does what we fail to do. See, the beautiful thing about the story of God is that the author of the story is also the actor in the story. You see, God, because he saw us make a mess of this good creation, broke into space and into time in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. And God, because he knew that we fail to tend and to keep the, quote, garden, The creation that he made, we failed to worship him as holy priests, sent Jesus to do what we could never do. Think about it. Jesus was the perfect worker. (laughs) He tended and kept God's garden every moment of his life. He worshiped God and God alone fully and finally. God because he knew that we would not and could not after we failed the first time obey that one little commandment not to eat of the tree. Because we failed, God enters the story in Jesus and Jesus does what we fail to do. And and Jesus, by the way, isn't in a garden that's perfect with just one rule that could possibly be broken. No, when Jesus is tempted by the devil, he is in the wilderness after 40 days of no food and water. Being tempted by the evil one with the literal weight of the world on his shoulders and where Adam failed to obey God's law, Jesus succeeds. You know, God knew that we would never extend and be fruitful and multiply without all sorts of messy, horrendous issues cropping up every day like weeds in a garden. And so God sent Jesus to... Well, to be the perfect husband for his church, his bride, he sent Jesus to create a new family where we failed to create a family that honored God. And that family is called the church. You see, the great part about God's story is that when the plot twists downward, God enters himself and carries till the final scene God in Jesus does what we failed to do in the garden. And so Genesis 2 is really showing you the world that then was before sin, and it's showing you the world that once again will be because of Jesus. You see, every time you read this story, you're to see, I do not measure up to what was initially intended, but Jesus does. And through connecting to Jesus, You again measure up with God. (laughs) Through connecting to Jesus, you you begin to fulfill what you were initially created to do. You see, Jesus is, he's not just God, he's, he's also the perfect human. He is fully human where you failed. He succeeded and obeyed where you disobeyed. The story is driving you to see him as the fulfiller of everything that God initially called us to do, and it's calling you to trust that he has done that in your place. When you do, your story is in a very real way rewritten, rewritten in a sense that you begin to get exposed to life under God's blessed authority again rewritten in the sense that you get a taste of the grace, the grace that God, the author of our story and the author of this world, provides for you freely in Jesus. Let's pray.